Thank you very much. Uh, just to, not to correct you, but to supplement you and to avoid all ambiguities. Uh, yes, the final scene, I hope it will work. The idea is this one. You remember how Leonardo DiCaprio is drowning and my old theory of how she, Kate Winslet, pushes him away. So we stage at that moment when she pushes him away, we will cut to me. It was done very professionally. They put artificial <laughs> eyes and they even put, you know, they had some kind of a very heavy 30 pounds belt that you put on so that without anyone pulling you, you go, you sink, you sink slowly. So it's done that I am slowly disappearing and then I do some stupid Alain Badiou revolutionary talk like all the eyes in the world cannot kill a revolutionary idea, I will come back. So I disappear, <laughs> but then comes the carry, carry, the movie moment, then my hand comes up like this and uh, I was told it works, that's all I can say. So let me do some serious, over long, boring stuff. First, I warn you, I will use some old stuff, some mixed stuff. What this stupid proverb that you have? Something old, something new, something borrowed, something red, not, not blue, of course. Not. So let me begin. Since nonetheless, this was a conference basically about human rights. No, I want just to go through my line and then apply to the mess we are in today. So the most obvious case of and for human rights are the rights of those who are simply starving or exposed to murderous violence. Ronnie Brauman, a French guy, very progressive, good man, who, on behalf of the Red Cross, coordinated two decades ago the help to Sarajevo, demonstrated how the very presentation of the crisis of Sarajevo as humanitarian, the very recasting of the political-military conflict in humanitarian terms, was sustained by an eminently political choice. He, Ronnie Brauman, claims that especially ominous and manipulative was here the role of François Mitterrand. A quote from Ronnie Brauman. The celebration of humanitarian intervention in Yugoslavia took, took the place of a political discourse disqualifying in advance all conflicting debate. It was apparently not possible for Mitterrand to publicly express his analysis of the war in Yugoslavia. With the strictly humanitarian response, he discovered an unexpected source of communication or more precisely of cosmetics. Mitterrand was in favor of the maintenance of Yugoslavia within its borders, he was persuaded that only a strong Serbian power was in the position to guarantee <coughs> the stability in this region. This position became unacceptable for the majority of the French people, so all the bustling activity and the humanitarian discourse permitted Mitterrand to reaffirm the unfailing commitment of France to the rights of men in the end, and to mimic an opposition to Serbian nationalism, all in giving it a free reign. I think this is one of the many examples of a good analysis, basically supporting what Costas was developing in his books. To be very open here, you may not agree with this specific 
anti-Serb, not against Serb people, but government point. But I think that the basic conceptual structure of this argument is nonetheless correct. How? Depoliticizing the situation, uh, 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 reformulating in, in purely humanitarian terms, as a rule, always, uh, uh, always masks a certain, usually unacceptable political choice. You know, it's a little bit like Sorry if I repeat my old jokes, but that's life. But I don't think I've used it a lot in London here. <laughs> the jokes that I repeat now all the time because I really like it, you know, from Ernst Lubitsch Ninochka. You know, a guy enters a, cafeter a cafeteria and says, can I have coffee with cream, please? They tell him, uh, sorry, we don't, we run out of cream. We only have milk. So can we get you coffee without milk? It's a very nice Hegelian point. How? What is not in? The negativity is part of the definition. It may be in immediate reality the same. Coffee without cream, coffee without milk. But it's not the same. Exactly as here, you know, humanitarian intervention, let's say, is a humanitarian intervention. This is Michael Ignatieff's mistake. Yeah, but we should ask, is it without milk or without cream? That is to say, what negative politics is negated? by it. It's absolutely crucial to do this. Uh, I think even more generally, the post-Yugoslav war was an exemplary case insofar as it also displayed the worst racism of some allegedly leftist radicals, a very brutal racism combined with breathtaking ignorance of facts. First, I don't just blame, to be very clear, only the Serbs. I'm the first to admit that in Croatia, even now in Slovenia, there was also a very strong racism. For example, I don't know, if there is one really the darkest political power at this point in ex-Yugoslavia, it's probably, as far as I can judge, the Croat Catholic Church. You know that they are absolutely openly pro-Ustasi, pro-Pavelic regime during World War II. They don't even want to make a symbolic kind of empty distance towards it. But as the model of this reasoning, I want to take a guy whom I usually consider a good guy, the Australian progressive journalist, how do you pronounce the name? John Pilger, Pilger? Pilger. John Pilger. Look, that's a quote from him. From his text, Don't Forget What Happened in Yugoslavia, from the New Statement, August 14, 2008. Look, Yugoslavia was a uniquely independent and multi-ethnic, if imperfect, federation that stood as a political and economic breach in the Cold War. This was not acceptable to the expanding European community, especially newly united Germany, which had begun a drive east to dominate its natural market in the Yugoslav provinces of Croatia and Slovenia. By the time the Europeans met at Maastricht in 1991, a secret deal had been struck. Germany recognized Croatia and Yugoslavia was doomed. In Washington, the US ensured that the struggling Yugoslav economy was denied World Bank loans and the defunct NATO was reinvented as an enforcer. Well, I don't think that in bare 10 lines I have ever seen so many 
factual lies, inaccuracies, and so on, and so on. The NATO was reinvented as an enforcer, yes, almost 20 years later. If anything, the NATO totally... Th then, the, in Washington, the U.S. ensured, no, they ensured nothing. They did exactly the opposite. The Washington till, as long as it ruled, supported the federal government. I remember Ante Markovic, the prime minister, touring all Yugoslav republics and and waving with American money and claiming, if you give Yugoslavia another chance, we have all the credits. But the strangest thing, this Yugoslav provinces, sorry, they were not provinces, they were uh, sovereign republics with the right to secede uh, guaranteed by the Constitution. But, but not sovereign, not sovereign. Yes. Federated. Uh, no. Federated sorry, it said in the Constitution that each republic of Yugoslavia, okay, in this sense sovereign, has the full unlimited right at any point to leave the Federation. And as we know now, there was a very interesting struggle in the nomenclatura already in the 70s where if you had very good glasses, it was possible to see the writing on the wall that things will turn bad. Namely, there was a conflict within nomenclatura what to do if the system will get into serious trouble. One line was a more nationalist one, Serb-dominated, which said Yugoslavia is an ethnic community of southern Slavs, so to cut a long story short, it should survive even if self-management socialism disintegrates. And there was another line which says no, no national mystique. The only thing that unites us is specific project of self-management socialism. If this falls, uh, we shall see. But what really shocked me, okay, I accept this. This is the usual leftist blah, blah. I accept this from Pilger. What really shocked me is what follows. Then, listen carefully how he characterizes Kosovo. A literal quote. Kosovo is a land which has no formal economy and is run, in effect, by criminal gangs that traffic in drugs, contraband, and women. I mean, if there ever was racism, it is this. You dismiss a whole nation as a gang of criminals. Even, I checked it up, the Serbs who are most anti-Albanian would never say that, would never go as far as that. And what I find so strange is that nobody even uh, noticed it. It's kind of acceptable. I mean, imagine that anyone were to characterize another struggling ethnic group in these terms. Like if somebody were to say, I don't know, give me examples, the Basques, the Tamils in Ceylon, in Ceylon and so on and so on. Uh, then, uh, okay, I will not lose time with this. Uh, but let me return to my main line of thought. We should move further then to the general level and render problematic, we all know, we learned this from Costas, of course, and others, the very depoliticized humanitarian politics of human rights as the ideology of military interventionism. As Wendy Brown developed, apropos Michael Ignatieff, humanitarianism presents itself as something of an anti-politics, a pure defense of the innocent and the powerless against power, a pure defense of the individual against immense 
potentially cruel, despotic machineries of culture, state, war, ethnic conflict, tribalism, patriarchy, and so on. However, the question is, I quote again Wendy Brown, what kind of politicization those who intervene on behalf of human rights set in motion against the powers they oppose? Do they stand for a different formulation of justice, or do they stand in opposition to collective justice projects? End of quote. Ah, this is you. It's good that it's not me. I was afraid that this would happen to me. But as once, but you told me, and I will tell him, please go on, just tell me if I speak too loudly to disturb your <laughs> communication. <Okay. laughs> Say, it is clear that the NATO overthrowing of Gaddafi, legitimized in the terms of ending the suffering of the Libyan people, was not only motivated by political economic interests, oil, but also relied on a very precise idea of the political and economic conditions which should open up the perspective of freedom for the Libyan people. So the purely humanitarian anti-political politics of only preventing suffering effectively amounts to the implicit prohibition of elaborating a positive collective project of socio-political transformation. Because even Ignatiev, who tries to play this role very, in a very pure way, he cannot even rhetorically sustain it to the end. He was once nicely questioned by a journalist, but what about what you say about market there? Or something like that, uh, role of market? And then it's incredible what he said. He said something like, no, no, this is not politics. This is simple human experience which tells us that, uh, that liberal democracy and market are the best to prevent human suffering. No, like this has nothing to do with politics. Okay, we know this, this is elementary. But let, let me make one step further at this elementary level. One should also problematize the very opposition between universal pre-political human rights, which allegedly belong to every human being as such, and specific political rights of a citizen, member of a particular political community. In this sense, I think Balibar, Etienne Balibar, was justified when he referred to Hannah Arendt's insight apropos the 20th century phenomenon of refugees. A quote, nonetheless a nice quote from Hannah Arendt. The conception of human rights based upon the assumed existence of a human being as such broke down at the very moment when those who professed to believe in it were for the first time confronted with people who had indeed lost all other qualities and specific relationships, except that they were still human, end of quote. This line, of course, leads straight to Georgia Gamben's notion of homo sacer as a human being reduced to bare life. What then happens to human rights when they are reduced to the rights of homo sacer, of those excluded from political community? That is to say, when human rights become of no use, since they are the rights of those who precisely have no rights. Here, I think Jacques Rancière proposed a wonderful formulation referring to human rights. Again, a quote. When they are of no use, human rights, you do the same as charitable persons do with their old clothes. You give them to the poor. Those rights that appear to be useless in their place are sent abroad. 
along with medicine and clothes, to people deprived of medicine, clothes, and rights. It is in this way, as the result of this process, that the rights of men become the rights of those who have no rights, the rights of bare human beings subjected to inhuman repression. They become humanitarian rights, the rights of those who cannot enact them, the victims of the absolute denial of right. For all this, they are not void. Political names and places are never simply void. The void is filled by something or somebody else. If those who suffer inhuman repression are unable to enact human rights that are their last recourse, then somebody else has to inherit their right in order to enact it in their place. This is what is called the right to humanitarian intervention, a right that some nations assume to the supposed benefit of victimized populations, and very often against the advice of humanitarian organizations themselves. The right of, to humanitarian interference might be described as a sort of return to sender. The disused rights that can be sent to the rightless are sent back to the senders. And so that you will not misunderstand me. I get this humanitarian point. Like, I'm not advocating this abstract pseudo and none of us is revolutionary attitude of, no, don't help the starving in Africa. Who cares if they die? They should just politically mobilize. This is why I like the figure of uh, uh, Ronnie Bauman, who is engaged in helping the poor, distributing food, medicine, but is nonetheless fully aware of political manipulations uh, behind it. So what today in the predominant Western discourse the human rights of the third world suffering victims effectively mean is the right of the Western powers themselves to intervene politically, economically, culturally, militarily. Human rights, this is how I think effectively they function in a very nice Lacanian way. You apparently speak about the rights of the others. What you really mean is our right to, to intervene there. Uh, now, uh, nonetheless, this is the standard story. I fully subscribe it. But nonetheless, uh, I think we should move further a little bit. The Marxist symptomal reading can effectively, convincingly demonstrate the particular content which gives the specific ideological spin to the notion of human rights. Like, you know, universal human rights are effectively what? the rights of, and then this changes in political situation. It can be the rights only of the white educated people. It can be the rights of colonial powers to intervene. For example, when there was the Mahdi uprising at the end of the 19th century in Sudan, if the language of human rights uh, were to be already present at that point, I'm pretty sure that Gordon, you know, the general and all the big uh, British colonial warriors would have said we are just intervening for humanitarian reasons, for human rights, and so on and so on. But this identification of the particular content that hegemonizes the universal forum is nonetheless, I think, only half of the story. The other half, here I would like to complicate 
the image a little bit. The other half is nonetheless that if we really want to be Marxists, it's not enough just to play this game of unearthing the specific political spin or bias of an apparent universality. Again, to repeat my old motto, it's not only that universality is often, even as a rule, an empty universality, which uh, secretly privileges a certain particularity. It's, a, in this sense, a false universality. You know, this can be, of course, triumphantly demonstrated with concrete analysis. For example, I don't know, every guy who is not from Europe will tell you that this is the most obvious example, only that the way Europeans formulate universal human rights, they secretly privilege individual rights over collective rights. But this privileging of individual over his or her community is already something specific to Western European culture. So in this sense, it's not... It's not neutral. Uh, of course, we should follow this. And incidentally, I confirmed this uh, uh, when I was in China. I'll give you a nice concrete example. Maybe you know it. I'm sorry if I repeat myself of this. You know, for us in the West, the most famous uh, photo from uh, the Tiananmen crackdown in Beijing, you know that lone guy confronting a tank. I spoke with my Chinese friends, not the party officials, but half dissidents. <laughs> and uh, no, the only thing I heard, my primitive theories about how power can only function through uh, obscenity were so totally confirmed in China, where the only way to really communicate with a couple of official philosophers that I met was by exchanging dirty jokes, like, you know, because it wasn't possible to talk seriously with them. They don't take seriously their own theory. So we started to tell dirty jokes, which they have plenty. Okay, what I wanted to say is that a, a dissident, some dissidents that I met, told me that that image plays, absolutely does not play such a central role in their own critical imaginary. Because, you know, this perception of a big state machinery and an individual confronting it, this is not their way to conceptualize the situation. The, uh, the <coughs> so again, that image is mythic in the West, but not, not there. Even, even this artist, although I maybe, I'm not sure, respected, how do, the guy who has millions. Yeah, yeah. No, this is very evil. People will accuse me of being paid by Chinese government to define. But, but uh, uh, again, maybe this is also the reason, not just the communist oppression, that he is much more famous in the West than there. Because, you know, this kind of alone guy being the conscience of the nation, so on and so on, this doesn't work in China. And I'm not playing here a racist card. I'm not saying because they are too primitive, collective, and so on. No, they have strong movements of resistance, but the really important movements, for example, ecological movements, trade union movements, and so on, they don't function, again, in this way, the heroic, lone individual uh, against the state. Okay, we know all this. What interests me more are two things. First, how 
and this is a basic lesson. Sorry for repeating myself, that I repeat all the time. This is for authentic Marxism only one side of the story. This how beware of false universality. Learn to detect the particular ideological, racist, whatever, spin of an apparent universality. The other side, and without this, what is best in Marxism has no sense, is also exactly the opposite point. Not only are things which are apparently universal in reality much more concrete with a particular spin, but there is... So it's not only that universality is an illusion, reality is much more particular, like I talk about universal human rights in reality, I privilege white, Western men, whatever, but also the contrary holds. When I think I'm just within a particular experience, I am effectively much more universal than I think I am. This is the whole point of Marx about what he calls with this beautiful Hegelian term, real abstraction, the real abstraction. Abstraction, not just as a mistake of uh, our reasoning, but abstraction embodied in social reality itself. The, the basic insight of Marx, which, uh, uh, un, which, is, which sustains all his talk about commodity fetishism and so on and so on, is that in the market economy, in capitalism, abstraction becomes a feature of real social life itself. Because it is on the market where, as Adorno developed extensively, uh, use value is subordinated to exchange value and so on and so on, that I experience my own culture as something contingent. This is how we are abstract beings in reality. Multiculturalism would be, for authentic Marxism, a perfect case of real abstraction. Insofar as multiculturalism means no cultural identity is fully natural. It's minimally a matter of contingency of choice, which means that whatever I am in my particular identity, it's not the very core of my being. You know, like, to be multicultural, abstract, in this sense, means someone somewhat vulgar metaphor, I know, means like, you know, instead of one food, you say, today Italian, tomorrow Mexican, then Chinese, then, if you are especially pervert and like bad food, British, and so on, whatever. <laughs> I mean, you see my point that it's in your reality itself that you experience yourself as at a distance from every particular identity. This is the crucial point about, again, uh, the world of commodities for Marx. So you see the crucial point. Here, I think, Marx broke with his own early vulgar Marxism, where, for example, in the German ideology, Marx endlessly repeated this point about how Abstraction is just an ideological abstraction. It's a misperception of what real, concrete people are doing in their life process. No, abstraction is the way we work, experience ourselves in reality itself. Reality itself is structured by abstractions. But this story, now I come to my crucial point, also have a positive dimension. 
Again, it is not enough to make the old Marxist point about the gap between the ideological appearance of the universal legal forum and the particular interests that effectively sustain it. The forum precisely is never a mere forum. It involves the dynamics of its own, which lets its traces in the materiality of social life. Like the so-called bourgeois formal freedom. Of course, it's a false freedom. But we should never forget that, although from the beginning it was false, we nevertheless should not dismiss it as uh, just an appearance which legit legitimizes actual exploitation and freedom. Yes, it is. But at the same time, we should not forget that this universality of formal freedom, bourgeois freedom, precisely as such opened up the space, and I claim aggressively the only possible space for its own undermining or radicalization. You know the story. Yes, it's ridiculously easy to show how, at the very beginning, human rights, but the rights are of, you know, all the qualifications. White men of certain wealth, not women, not children, not aborigines or other primitives, not criminals, and so on. But you know the story, how from the very beginning then questioning started. Mary Wollstonecraft, ah, we women are also human, so if human rights, why not us? And the mega event that we should all celebrate, Haiti, to Saint Louverture, if human rights, why not us, blacks? And so on, and so on, basically, including Marxism, all emancipatory movements are only conceivable as a radicalization of human rights. So again, my first point here is that this dialectic between appearance, in the sense of false ideological appearance and reality, is uh, much more ambiguous. There is an, how should I call it, an autonomous emancipatory dimension in appearance itself. And if you try to bypass the false appearance and go just for the reality, you may lose real freedom itself. This would be for me a very simple analysis of uh, Stalinism. Yes, Stalinism definitely abolished formal freedom, but you didn't get real freedom. You, you know what I mean? Like, uh, the, the paradox here is that if you abolish formal freedom, you may well lose uh, real freedom. You may well lose real freedom itself. So again, let me now, now this was something old, something borrowed. Now I go to new things. So uh, when, now this is a, a more important theoretical point. When we are dealing with the topic of human rights, I claim that critique of ideology tends to commit two opposed mistakes. The first one is the obvious one. The symptomal point, excess, antagonism is reduced to an accident, an empirical imperfection, not as something that emerges necessarily. The notion of universal human rights, we say, de facto privileges a determinate set of particular cultural values, European individualism, and so on, and so on. With this, we should, of course, fully agree. 
Here, I don't have time to develop it. I did it in one of my books. I forgot which one. To this, Ranciere proposes <laughs> a very nice solution that the only way to potentially save this, the discourse of human rights outside the bourgeois constraints is to define it you know, in a very nice dialectical reflexive move, not as universal rights in the sense that we immediately fetishize certain set of values as universal, but as a right to universality as such, that each particular political subject has the right to look for, to formulate its own universality. But another thing I want to draw your attention to, uh, uh, the opposite mistake, when all the field is, as it were, collapsed into its symptom. For example, the bourgeois freedom and equality are conceived as only and directly as capitalist ideological masks of domination and exploitation, or universal human rights are only and directly reduced to the means of justifying imperialist, colonialist interventions, and so on, and so on. I, again, as I already said, I think that the Marxist notion of formal freedom is much more refined. Yes, bourgeois freedom is only formal, but as such, it is, listen now carefully, it's a false form, appearance, but at the same time, the only site of appearance of actual freedom. So you see, that's the nice point. Of course, freedom emerges first as false freedom. But the only way to trace, to open up the space to real freedom is through this opening. If you do it directly and you say, oh, this is just a mask, well, let's do it directly, then you, again, by losing false freedom, you lose freedom as such. So. In, you see my point, instead of this direct reductionism, screw formal freedoms, they're just a mask of oppression, what you lose is the inherent antagonism, which is very important. What is, and now you will say, but nonetheless, does this naively mean that we should nonetheless stick to human rights? No, no. I here agree with your analysis. I'm more radical here. That is to well, say... You're not, but anyway. Sorry? You're not, but anyway. What did I say? That I am Nothing. more radical? Well, no. no, no, no. I'm, I'm, okay, I'm bourgeois, whatever. No problem. <laughs> but no, what I want to say is that, uh, that the thing to do is, of course, to take human rights and then, through focusing on their symptom as necessary, to, of course, this does not mean simply, oh, we abolish the system and we get real human rights. Of course, this symptom, if we take it seriously, retroactively, radically transforms the entire field of human rights, up to the very idea, should we even use the term of human rights? I, I concede all this. The only point here, maybe you can counterattack, it will be the clash of titans. Greeks, Greeks against barbarians, you know, like I know, Slavic hordes, you know, and you know, so. The Greeks always win. Sorry? The Greeks always win. Yeah, and then you become Turkish slaves. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then we win our independence with the revolution, unlike you Slavs. Yeah, with the help you are of. Slavs, we, which means yeah. slaves. So there you are. Oh my god, now you got it. Yeah, 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 yeah.
this was my meanest argument against Serbs, that, you know, this is the Croat nationalist stupidity, that Serbs come from Serbs, Serbs, serving, and so on, you know, like, you know, we in the Balkan are together the best for Marxist historical etymology, if I may put it in this way. No, uh, seriously, let me, let me yeah, go yeah, on. No, no. Uh, my point, would, would you agree with this, a very precise formulation, would be only this one, that the only site based on which we can effectively open up new freedoms is the site of this antagonism between format content. You cannot bypass it. I don't believe in I this do. bullshit. We return to some primitive tribal or whatever actual freedom and so on and so on. We have to operate in this space. And I agree with you radically critically. I'm absolutely not trying to rehabilitate human rights. I'm just saying that we have a space of ideological mystification of human rights and then symptoms. And then the point is to bring to the edge this antagonism, but in this sense that, of course, both poles are radically undermined. Uh, now, second part, which will be, I hope, more amusing and actual for you. What does this mean for our situation today? the renewed worldwide protest. Uh, I think it's crucial to bear in mind precisely, and I will be here a little bit self-critical, referring to our latest, the previous installment of our eternal polemics here, <laughs> uh, between the dialectics between the universal and the particular. First, when people tell me, misreading my statements uh, in New York and so on on Zuccotti Park, that, oh, am I saying we should just be keep silent and just wait for the big revolution. No, one thing that should the emancipatory politics do today is nonetheless to, uh, to what is needed today is the art of formulating the right particular demand and insist on it. A demand which while on the one hand it's totally realist. Nobody can say it's impossible. At the same time, nonetheless, disturbs the very core of hegemonic ideology. This is why, with all my criticism, I share it with you, of President Obama, and I had a soft spot on him, so I don't know, let me share with you a personal detail. When I watch his statement in support of the state of Israel against recognizing Palestina, I almost cried. I mean, didn't he even rhetorically? It was, he spoke like a puppet, I mean, without any... So why do I have still a soft spot? Because I think that the healthcare reform that he tried to do, I know it was totally diluted in its reality, but the debate was a crucial one. Why? Because it was very traumatic for the U.S. establishment. Because on the one hand, nobody can say this is some communist totalitarian project. It can be done, it works in Canada, in many European countries. So it's not in that sense a crazy utopia. But at the same time, it disturbed the very core of American ideology. All this bullshit of, you know, the state wants to take from us free choice and so on and so on. So on the one hand, I think, what is to be done today is absolutely to bombard those in power with to invent similar cases, 
cases where they, those in power, cannot accuse us of, like, I don't know, whatever, some crazy impossible demands. Demands which are absolutely feasible, possible, but nonetheless are de facto excluded from the ruling ideological universe. At the same time, we should nonetheless make it clear that this is not all. And now, if you again allow me to repeat in a different way what I published recently in some of the newspapers, uh, uh, this is why, and for this I was again proclaimed the bad guy by my best friends in the United States in the New Republic, the journal, no? whose lesson was formidable one. They published an, uh, uh, an editorial in one of their last issues where they claimed these protests are good, Wall Street, because they are purely ethical, moral protests against uh, corruption. But then come bad guys, me, who try to kidnap them for some obscure anti-capitalist <laughs> leftist cause, and they claim, but this is crazy, because we all know that without capitalism there is no freedom, no, and so on, something like that. Okay. Uh, 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 there is, and with this I would like to deal now a little bit, there is a problem here. The problem is that, and here, I, so that you will not accuse me of just where is your concrete program. No, let me be very clear here. When you begin the first break with hegemonic discourse, there, for structural reasons, uh, no precedes a yes. You have first to say no to open up the space, and then you work within this space. So, in the United States, they like this line of argumentation when I evoke hysteria, no? You know, it's similar like when you have the frustrated, but in a good sense, to avoid a misunderstanding, I'm not making fun of women here. For me, as a Lacanian, perversion is bad, hysteria is good. Yes. So, uh, but, you know, when a husband tries to dominate hysterical wife, a hysterical wife, one of the usual ways to say is, to do is to say, but decide, please, what do you want, and so on. Now, this seems very open, like, oh, I just want you to say what do you want. No, it's really the most oppressive thing to do. It really means put it in the terms which will reincorporate you into my existing power discourse or shut up. Which is why I think that on the other hand, and they didn't like it, the liberals in the United States, I mean they, those who maybe read me, although I must tell you to boast a little bit, I had some nice narcissistic experiences. After this uh, Zuccotti Park uh, speech, and then I did some show which went very well on that Charlie Rose. I was on Bloomberg TV, ah, that one, yeah? Uh, it was, no, this guy is basically not too bad, Charlie Rose, and it was a miracle. I was walking, not for political reasons, I went to J&R on City Park, Square, which is the only remaining good DVD store in New York, Jane. And, ben, uh, and then a guy, a black guy, but obviously upper class uh, 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 Wall Street, you know, with this business suite, looked around if no one is observing us. It was wonderful. And approached me and gave me his hand and said, listen, nobody's seeing us, so I can tell you, although I work on Wall Street, I totally agree with you. And left. <laughs> My God. Fuck it, whatever you say, it was nice, you know, it was nice, you know. No, because, uh, because you know what worked well with them? That rhetoric that I used, you know, like, they say we are socialists, but no, there is already socialism in the United States for the rich, no? Where the state covers you. Okay, let me go on, nonetheless. So, uh, what I claim is that 
precisely at this point, we should resist the temptation of the dialogue. To have too much dialogue at this point, dialogue can only mean that we adopt the field which is already here, which is their field. We need a distance. We need a time to think. And now, although this one was published at Guardian, but I will, uh, in their blog only, I will reformulate it a little bit because I really think it's important. The central point for me is, and it's the most disgusting point, but there is a moment of truth. It was made, did some of you read it? The comment reaction to uh, Wall Street by Anne Applebaum in Washington, you read it? It's disgusting, admit it. In Washington Post, uh, first, uh, maybe there still is a hope for Roman Polanski, the movie maker. You know what? You remember, did you see his ghost, the film, Ghostwriter? You know, the thesis. Blair or his wife, uh, CIA agents, blah, blah. Uh, this is incidentally a nice example of uh, reality has the structure of the fiction. Because, you know, the thesis of the film. Blair was a CIA agent planted, and somebody gave the best comment, a leftist, who said, I'm sure this is not true. But if it were true, it would have explained everything. You know? <laughs> it's a nice paradox. Okay, but what I want to say is that, you know what I heard from my friends in Poland? That everyone in Poland got the joke we didn't. You know that M. Applebaum is now the wife of the Polish Minister of Foreign Affairs, some pretty more right-wing liberal guy. Okay, now comes the crucial point. Uh, the lady who plays her in the film. No, sorry, the lady who plays, uh, who plays uh, uh, Tony Blair's wife, Cherry, in the film is Olivia Williams. And incidentally, a purely sexist uh, remark. I cannot restrain from uh, tasteless remarks. Yeah, I never got it. She's, for me, more, to me, more attractive than that bitch from, uh, from Sex in the City, Kim Cattrall. <laughs> so I simply didn't get it. Okay, but that's another intimate, really Marxist topic. More seriously, I was told that everybody in Poland got the joke that Olivia Williams looks very much like Anne Applebaum. And that this was Polanski nasty joke. Like, in the same way in M. Applebaum, the, the Western agents corrupting Poles, she's, because you know, at the end of the film, we learned that it wasn't Blair, it was, it was she who was CIA planted for the, from the beginning, and so on and so on. This is, I admit it, a small sympathetic feature of Polanski, nonetheless, to make. Okay, let me go on. Let me quote to you. Because it's really typical, and let's do a little bit more detailed analysis of the basic line of Applebaum's comment. Her starting point is that Wall Street protests are, now comes, I'm sorry for this a long quote, are similar in their lack of focus, in their inchoate nature, and above all, in their refusal to engage with existing democratic institutions. In New York, marchers chanted, this is what democracy look like. But actually, that's her comment, this isn't what democracy look like, looks like. This is what freedom of speech looks like. Democracy looks a lot more boring. Democracy requires institutions, elections, political parties, rules, laws, a judiciary, and many unglamorous, time-consuming activities. 
Yet, in one sense, the international Occupy movement's failure to produce sound legislative proposals is understandable. Both the sources of the global economic crisis and the solutions to it lie, by definition, outside the competence of local and national politicians. The emergence of an international protest movement without a coherent program is therefore not an accident. It reflects a deeper crisis, one without an obvious solution. Democracy is based on the rule of law. Democracy works only within distinct borders and among people who feel themselves to be part of the same nation. A global community cannot be a national democracy. And the national democracy cannot command the allegiance of a billion dollar global fund with its headquarters in a tax haven and its employees scattered around the world. Unlike the Egyptians in Tahrir Square, to whom the London and New York protesters openly and ridiculously compare themselves, we have democratic institutions in the Western world. They are designed to reflect, at least crudely, the desire for political change within a given nation. But they cannot cope with the desire for global political change, nor can they control things that happen outside their borders. Although I still believe in globalization's economic and spiritual benefits, along with open borders, freedom of movement, and free trade, globalization has clearly begun to undermine the legitimacy of Western democracies. Global activists, if they are not careful, will accelerate this decline. Protesters in London shout, we need to have a process. Well, they already have a process. It's called the British political system. And if they don't figure out how to use it, they'll simply weaken it further. I mean, there are moments of truth in here. Let me analyze it. The first thing to note is Applebaum's reduction of the Tahrir Square protests to the calls for Western-style democracy. Of course, once we do this, it becomes ridiculous to compel pair Wall Street protests with the Egypt event. How can protesters here demand what we already have? That is to say, democratic institutions that those in Egypt want. But this precisely, I think, is what we should do. That's the key to it. Precisely, A, again, it's a very limited ideological reading to claim simply that Egyptian crowds want what we already have. No, it's obvious that they want something more, something different. Justice and so on, precisely what we want. But again, the central, for me, shocking part of Applebaum's argumentation, a truly weird gap, jump in her line of reasoning, occurs at the end of this long quoted passage. Remember, after conceding that the, that the catastrophic economical consequences of global capitalist finances are due to their international character, that they are out of control of democratic mechanisms, she draws a quite ne necessary and correct, I think, conclusion. I quote her again. Globalization has clearly begun to undermine the legitimacy of Western democracies. So far, so good, I'm tempted to say. 
This is precisely, I claim, what the protesters were drawing attention to. I think what is, in spite of all the confusion, and you can imagine me as a, in my private economy, a, a, a puritanic fascist, how I didn't like to mingle with the crowd on Zuccotti Park, Wall Street, all those dirty old hippies, my God, I almost called, where is the police? But nonetheless, I sincerely support them, because I think that with all the confusion, of course, what do the people expect? If you ask them, of course, you get confused answers. But there are two chaotic, two blurred but nonetheless correct insights. This is what is great about this wave of protests. First, it's not just against particular injustice here and there, you know, the stories our media are full of. This company's political environment, that company is uh, employing uh, slave uh, uh, child workers. No, it's the inside that what is problematic is the system as such and what intelligent observers got, an even deeper insight, which is that not democracy as such people's rule, but our existing form, form of democracy, democratic system, cannot cope with this crisis. So it's a critique of democracy, not in general, because it's done precisely on behalf of the people. But basically, they are saying precisely what an Applebaum is saying. Globalization has begun to undermine the legitimacy of our democracies. Now, I would have thought that the only logical conclusion from this would have been we should start thinking about how to transform, expand democracy beyond its state multi-party political forum, which obviously leaves out destructive consequences of economic life. Instead of this, Applebaum performs a weird turnaround and shifts the blame on the victim of, on protesters themselves. You see the gap. First, she says, protesters have a point. Of course, they cannot formulate concrete demands because simply there is something wrong in today's global economy and our political democratic institution, the way we have them, cannot deal with it. Now, the obvious conclusion would have been, can we maybe reinvent democracy so that it will be able to deal with it? No, in a very weird way, she said, no, the only thing to do is, it, uh, the, we have a process, it's called British political system, and so on and so on. So in other words, it's a crazy conclusion against her own premises. What she's saying is basically, let's go on playing the game. Let's accept that we cannot do anything at that level. And of course, the result of this is, as it was well noticed, the result of this is what? It's what is happening now in different forums in Italy, as you told me before, it's the pure forum, technocratic government, purely neutral. In Greece, you learned me, it's more complex because only the top is technocratic. Then you have some kind of all-national coalition, which I think, if you want any further proofs of, you know, people thought that me and also some other minor figures like Habermas recently, okay, bad joke, but even he got it finally and wrote about how the true victim of this ongoing crisis is democracy. What happened recently in Greece is a pure 
case, how you remember these two oscillations of Europe, by Europe I mean Brussels Europe. First, referendum, total panic in Europe, markets down. Then, technocrat, okay, banker at the top of a government, ooh, big relief, finally, finally. Are we aware what's the message of this? It's, you know, people think, some people think I was joking when I was saying democracy is more and more suspended. But we got here almost a clinical case of it. The idea is that precisely now, when we are in trouble, and let me be precise, what does it mean that we are in trouble? It means we are in a time when political decisions are not just an empty form, when you really have to decide. The message is now precisely we have to suspend democracy and to put full trust into whom? Into bankers, into those, to cut a long story short, who screwed things up exactly, no? So again, this is what I really find great about this protest. You know, for a long year, years, decades even, we were living in this one-issue movement protest against sexism here, feminism there, which I totally support them. But nonetheless... Did you? Sorry? Did you? Uh, not didn't fully, you hear about? Fully, didn't yeah. you hear about <laughs> empty rhetoric? Ah, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. I hear it. I hear it. Yeah, yeah. No, no. no sorry, <laughs> seriously. But what I'm saying is that what is so great is that now, finally, the system itself became a problem, and very importantly, with it, not in any total sense of any totalitarian temptation, but we became aware of. Here we have the true version of what Alain Badiou said, maybe in a little bit even for me, too provocative forum, but I like him for that. You know when Badiou said the name of the enemy today is not capitalism, imperialism, blah, blah, the name of the enemy is democracy. No, he wasn't crazy. He was saying, my God, what Anne Applebaum is saying, that we are facing problems today and that the democracy we have today, institutional, obviously cannot cope with these problems. This is our task today. Now let me go further a little bit. Uh, nonetheless, here I return to the argument I made that you didn't agree the last time. I accept all this. We shouldn't terrorize now protesters, give us a precise plan or whatever. But nonetheless, let me put it in this way. Since, nonetheless, we are approaching a situation where things will have to be decided. I think it is nonetheless important that, uh, that uh, we uh, start to shift focus from the purely, let me call it, negative gesture. We reject this debt to at least try to play with, imagine, alternate modes of organizing, production, and so on, and so on. I mean, this is for me so crucially important. Why? It's easy to mock these technocrats. But, you know, it's important not just to say, okay, they mask a certain politics, and so on, and so on. But, uh, like, I wanted to ask you this, let's imagine that our best or worst fears, it depends, it depends on what you think, will happen in Greece. There will be some kind of a half 
collapse of the state, and I use this term consciously at its, in its vague state, in some way people would have to take over. What to do then? How to organize? Let me be very clear. Isn't it absolutely clear that all the rich with their riches will try to escape the country? So, fuck it. You, you can uh, imagine how my heart is jumping here because fuck it. You will need very strong police repression and so on. It's the only way to... You know what I mean? Positive. This is what I like in Lenin, for example. Yeah, yeah, all the revolutionary bullshit, but once they were in power... His motives were organization, hard work, discipline. I think it's so important that we, re that we at least start to think about it. If not, because I'm saying this not to say, ah, ah, Comrade Stalin will be back, but precisely <laughs> how to prevent Stalin to come back. How to, without this, we will be eternally condemned just to this negative, moralistic protest. We want justice. Fuck you. What kind of justice? How? Let's at least start dreaming about it. The time is here. Because that's, for me, the tragedy. If you only protest, what other thing you can get but a technocratic government? I mean, we protest. And what then? It's, I wouldn't even blame just those in power. We have to start thinking at all levels and be very critical here. For example, with you, Oscar, I agree. This may surprise you because you think I'm only bullshitting about Hegel and Henry James or what. But for example, I'm closely following as far as I can. And I, if I got you correctly, Oscar, I still look at it with sympathy, but I shared, if I got it correctly, your skepticism. Like, I know that tremendous experiments are going on in Venezuela, for example. But, ah, 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 to be, to be graceful, merciful, the results are mixed, and so on. And I would even say that up to a point, uh, the fact that Chavez gets enough money from oil is in a way even a curse, because I would say money allows him to postpone confronting, you know, there is a real problem, fuck it, if you have money, you pay for it, I mean, you, so uh, what I'm again saying is that, you know, once when you, friendly, attacked me, this, I will battle. not, oh, in a minute, yes, yeah. <laughs> can't anyone, you okay, know, no, 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 let no, no, just let to say, say okay. you something else and then you can say it. You know what is my point here? I was thinking about you, I don't know why. I recently <laughs> saw, I recently saw a movie on KGB, when a KGB officer said, any usual secret service can organize a murder. Only a truly great secret service like ours can organize a natural death, you know. Murder being... So I don't know why okay. I thought of you now. here, but okay. <laughs> Please, attack now. Uh, attack, attack. I, I, will I will reverse the position yeah. dialectically in a Hegelian way. The problem is precisely the opposite of what you've been telling us in okay. the previous, yeah. uh, and previous now, occasions yeah. and now. The problem is not what's going to happen after 
a new kind of regime yeah. of some kind of yeah. socialist persuasion takes over. The problem is how to get there because the, the, the kind of model you have in your mind is very much a Leninist. We are going mm. to take the winter, let me finish, yeah. to take the winter palace. And of course, if this is a putsch yeah. or a coup d'etat or some kind of violent revolution, mm. of course, there is a major issue that if you have a violent revolution, what happens after the violent revolution? In other words, after a huge radical transformation from a state where the democratic, mm or childish or whatever mm. into another state is a major problem organization. Mm. But to the extent that we're not in a situation mm. like that, the major problem is not what will happen after mm. some left-wing alliance takes power because it will take power democratically through elections. In other words, there will be a long process in which programs will be created when the possibility of a victory will be, becomes realistic, people start working on constitutional reform, on institutional reform, on what to do with the KGB, as you put it, what to do with the military. In other words, it will be a long democratic process, and precisely the difficult point is to take power, not to do what to do afterwards, because it will be the process of taking power that will determine both in terms of the popular organization and energy and, uh, and motivation and campaigning, but also in terms of the ideas, the concepts that will have to be presented to the people in order to create a hegemonic block to take power, that what happens afterwards will emerge. In other words, what you are asking of people in Zuccotti Park or from Athens or from Tahrir Square were to act like Lenin, to have a vision of how the socialist state will be after the revolution, but in Lenin's case, or in your total misunderstanding of the situation in relation to this particular mm. point, is based on a conception of a putsch, or of a winter palace, or of taking the Bastille. So in that sense, it is precisely in Hegelian way, you have it totally upside down. It is how to get to power, which is a problem, not what we're going to do afterwards. Okay, I totally reject what you said. And let, me, <laughs> let me explain why. Because I claim this is pure rhetorics. you simply postponed the problem. Oh, did you hear him? All he said is, we will do it democratically. Sorry, what does this mean? That we will win, some group of people will win an election and they will have a majority in parliament. That's what it means. A okay, then nice to meet you with your utopia, go on. This is totally, totally, I repeat it three times, totally unworkable. And, uh, because precisely, my God, so in other words, nothing. We will have the same system, just the good guys will win democratically or what? I can guarantee you this will never happen. First, you will never get the majority and so on. Do you really but think... But that's why I say this is the difficult part. That we yeah, but this is, I know, I know, this is Not the standard. No, I, first, where did you get this idea of puts or whatsoever? What I'm saying is that, and that was the point of my critique of Applebaum, my God, that it's an illusion that you can simply use the existing democratic multi-party system to do the change. But it this doesn't, is precisely what Chakri uh, Square... Uh, Puerta de Sol or Syntagma Square in Athens are doing to what you call the democratic system. They're introducing the aspect of direct democracy. People taking uh, power in particular areas, you know, taking initiatives, creating new forms and so on. So of course I agree with you. I mean, I took that for granted that it is not just 
staking the elections, you know, a vote and winning an election at the end of it. It is a whole mobilization which uses all kinds of different forms. And it is precisely the first time in our history of the last 200 years in terms of a democratic yeah. politics that these movements have introduced this new aspect, non-representational democracy, but direct democracy. People preparing themselves to, as it were, become parts become central to the whole way in which political yeah. powers are Okay, here we have then even a stronger distinction because first I will be as clear and brutal as possible. I don't buy this bullshit about direct democracy. First, this is nothing new. In every revolution you have it. You have it in councils in 1990 and so on. And for me, now we come to a truly crucial distinction. For me, yes, it's wonderful as long as it lasts. But then, at a certain point, as we put it, and nothing uh, ironic about it, things return to normal. It's difficult to change that point. It's easy to have your direct democracy where, as you showed up, as you uh, demonstrated the last time, we all are allowed to speak, everyone speaks for two minutes, and so on. But you know, when there you have to run things, you cannot gather people who will each speak for two minutes, and so on. The problem is precisely how to organize when this enthusiasm, whatever you call it, it's over. The problem is what changes when you have demobilization, no longer mobilization. This is for me the crucial problem. And what I am afraid is that when you say, well, it's a long process, we will find it, it's just rhetoric. Like, of course it's a long process, but all I'm saying is, okay, this is also a position, but your position is basically, if I got it correctly, we cannot say anything, we will see what happens. Yeah. I mean, this is for me, a little bit too risky, especially since where I am a pessimist, and am I quoting your own example, is that in Greece now, you know, who knows if even there will be time to wait for generations to this education, maybe you will have to act faster. What I'm saying that for me, the big problem is not this direct democracy and so on. The big problem is, can we imagine another way of what Gramsci called the new order mm -hmm. of things functioning normally in a different but way. But what you know, you're saying again, and we said that repeatedly in the past, yes, yes, the new order, this is total eschatology. This is, you know... No, because Christian I'm not theology. saying this is the end of what history. You're telling us, no, no, what you're telling us is we have to know how paradise is. Before we know what paradise is, we're not going to make any attempt to get there. And what I'm saying is much more important to try to get to paradise, and once we get there, we'll work it out. Because your... Your, your recipe and your advice all over the world to these movements of people who are standing yeah. up and mobilizing and yeah. so on is that before you have a full blueprint of how society no. is going to be after the change, you should not do anything. You know, do a bit of protest, do a bit of hippie-dom here and a hippie-dom there. And no, since you don't that. have your full constitutional no. order and party in I place, never said forget this. It. What I said is on the contrary that if you just want to go to a paradise without knowing where you are going, you can well end in hell. Indeed. And but that's what happened. This is the chance you take. Sorry, this is? As Benjamin said, the worst and the best are very close to one another. But unless you aim no, but for wait the a minute. best, okay, let you me don't be, get, okay, get Let anywhere. me be concrete. I am not saying 
First, I never spoke about what will be. Who knows what will be, if you ask me, okay. and I like it. So I think if uh, capitalism will be followed by another society, it will be a much more severe disciplinary society, and I love it. But that's another story. <laughs> what I'm saying is this. I agree with you. This dialectic of yours that... Uh, this is what would be my answer to you. If there is a lesson from sad experience of Stalinism, it is that you cannot play this game of first stage, second stage, you know, like this wonderful pseudo-dialectic of Stalin when he said at his high point, as we know all, literally, that the way, uh, the, way the state withers away is through strengthening of its organs, especially organs of repression. No, okay, we all love this bullshit. But my point is this one. I don't think you can simply say how to go to paradise, paradise is there. If there is a lesson from, to be drawn from the set 20th century experience is that the germs of paradise must be already here in how we are organizing now and here and be. Direct democracy is not enough. You know what nobody I mean? Nobody said that. I mean, I, 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 except for some anarchists, nobody would say that direct democracy. Yeah, but what did you say? That's my problem. What did you say? Uh, you, said par you said standard party rule, votes, and direct democracy. Did I hear it wrongly? Yes, yes. No, no, I, I didn't that, hear yes. anything else. I did say that, yes. Yeah, so this for me, I don't get easy solutions. So All what, I'm is, saying, what else is there? Oh, that, thanks very much. This means like still. Okay, this, what you are saying now, my God, this really makes me sad. This means let's kill ourselves for me. This means we cannot even imagine anything else. What are then we doing here? We have parliamentary democracy and we have this ecstatic mobilization which lasts as long as it lasts. If there is nothing else, then there is no way for us. Then we are back to the system where things run normally and every 20 years you have one ecstatic year and then we meet every 10 years and celebrate, wasn't it nice when <laughs> we were there? No, but I'm not saying, you no, know what I mean? You're a very imaginary guy, so use your imagination and give us some alternative, you know, sort of utopia that, you know, then I would be very happy to follow. But are you aware what you are saying? You are saying that we live in a certain world of parliamentary democracy capitalism. What you are saying is that apart from this direct ecstasy of, let's call it horizontal democracy, we cannot even imagine a change. No, no I didn't say that. I mean, and if you want you to did. become a little more philosophical, yeah. what we're discussing here is the metaphysics of representation. So we have a system which is based totally hmm. on the idea of representation hmm. at all levels, including the uh, parliamentary constitutional yeah, yeah, yeah. level. And what we're, you know, what I was, uh, in a sense, proposing is that this system of representation, which is a metaphysical way through which we turn the concrete into some kind of generality, not universality, yeah. has to be substituted. It cannot be by what? totally by a non-representational principle. A non-representational yes. principle yes. means a number of things, including councils, what including more? people, people in the streets, in the Which squares, means and so on. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So 
These you are strictly exceptional phenomena. The representational and the non-representational principles together yeah. more or less cover the whole of the metaphysical positions, the philosophical no, positions no, that are given to no, us. No, no, absolutely not. Okay. I think what is absolutely Tell crucial is to... Because your mistake, I think, is that you too easily identified representation as such with... Represent well, our focus should not be for me on this bullshit of non-representational, but on different forms of, of representation. Of this is for me, there is the true creative work. In normal times, you cannot have permanent activity. You need representation, but you need a different type of representation, maybe even less democratic, I don't know. No, all I'm saying, my God, I, I really find it... I don't think we disagree. But, yeah, you know. because, no, you know what worries me? Can't you see? What worries me is that we will have a beautiful protest, and then this protest will disappear, and then all that will, will remain is that we will feel very well what a nice time we had during the protest. Show me what will remain. Show me what will remain as new institutional forms and so on. And I agree with you. Something probably will emerge. I'm not, a, I'm not as pessimist as I may sound here. Just let's look at history, how people thought many things they are not possible. Let's not forget, here we should even sincerely praise democracy itself. My God, till modernity, people thought the moment you don't have a natural pretender to power, the moment you open up the field and admit the empty place of power, it's catastrophe. The great triumph of democracy is that it turned this moment when the throne is empty into the very resource of the stability of the system. So things can be done. But I don't think I'm to I don't want to terrorize people into this or oh, give me a detailed blueprint. No, I just think that we should be very careful. I hope this will be the formula of peace, but for the peace to really work, we need sometime someone like a Jew so that we <laughs> sacrifice the third one. Should be Trotskites or who, some bad guy. Yeah. No, sorry, seriously. Don't you agree this, that while we are going to the paradise, we should, I think, uh, it's not enough, this ecstatic, and not to mention another thing. Here, I report on my conversations with Linera. Now I'm doing. Linera a, is the vice president yeah. of Bolivia, a sociologist yeah. and a major. Not a total idiot theoretically, which is very rare for politicians. The only reason he says that is because he claims that Linera has read his books and therefore he likes. No, but this is just an, a common, <laughs> commonsensical evident test for intelligence. If he reads my. This is just common sense. Nothing to. I'm smoking like Ignatiev. Market and democracy, you know, it's a totally apolitical test. Sorry, seriously, you know, for example, what he told me, something very interesting. Was it you, Oscar, or somebody who told me, like, okay, Linera tries this precisely to not to abolish democracy, formal bourgeois, but to kind of uh, supplement it with movements and so on. But he told me this. He's well aware that don't idealize the movements. He draw my attention, for example, now to immense corruption in movements means this. You have people back there in the mountains who have their representative in Bolivia who mostly fights you know, movements also work like representative of this group of miners wants more money against another one and so on. So 
I'm all only the only thing I'm saying is let's not forget about this. I hope we all agree. Capitalism is not just some exploitative machine. It's an immensely complex economic, legal system, and so on, and so on. And keeps reviving itself. And keeps reviving. It's an incredible vampire living dead. And this is the problem with people who think that a crisis, a capitalist crisis, leads to Here we totally agree. Crisis is precisely the way through which capitalism always renewed itself. Yeah. So, so again, I'm here totally non-dogmatic. I definitely... I think here I thought this is what I propose as a formula for peace, temporary peace. At the end, you go to Gulag, but temporary well. peace. Yeah. No, sorry. I think that uh, that uh, I, uh, I think that uh, no, that if there will be what you said, a Leninist putsch, yes. it will be the right wing probably. That is true. If there will that be one, it will come from their side. It already happened in, in Greece and Italy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Precisely. It's this is what people don't get. It. I was very serious when I warned that. The new type of authoritarianism will not be this old-style fascism, you know, a new leader. No, in Greece, in Italy, you can still buy pornography, make love with cats, whatever. All that. No, it's, it's what I'm telling you all the time. It is something like uh, it is something like Terry Gilliam's Brazil which is, I think, still one of the greatest films of all times. You know, you have this totally crazy society which is not fascist in this immediate sense. But fuck it, it is an authoritarian society and so on and so on. And again, I'm here, I, I'm not saying about any direct abolishment of money or whatever. I agree totally with you. The great art of authentic progressive politics is, I hope you agree with this, a mixture of a principled attitude with extreme pragmatism as to. Absolutely. I have absolutely no problem, which is why at this level, although I don't agree with them. For example, I admire the wisdom of Deng Xiaoping, who did exactly the opposite of the stupid Russians. But Russians are not stupid. I sincerely buy here, don't you also, a little bit of this paranoia theory that I think Russians were screwed up by American advisors. Who, in, I mean, early Yeltsin years, who gave them exactly the wrong advice. Start privatization with big banks, natural assets. No, exactly the opposite. Deng Xiaoping did the intelligent thing. He started privatization with small consumerist industry where people immediately felt effects. And although this may be an obscenity for some Marxists, but, uh, but uh, he, he, he up to a point succeeded in getting from capitalism what, okay, Marxist will kill me, I use it with bad conscience, get the productive side of capitalism, you know, like people feel it, yeah, yeah, you get new product. Well, in Russia, it was exactly the opposite. What was quickly privatized were banks, forests, mines, uh, oil, of course, and so on, while the entire, not in the bad sense of the term, consumerist industry, was there in its total bankruptcy and so on and so on. It was the worst imaginable scenario. So do you agree this? A principled attitude, but connected with the most ruthless pragmatism. For example, if I were Greece, I want to ask you a concrete question, very benevolent, very benevolent. Uh, 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 do you, you see... know what's coming now. No, 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 time. it's not. Surprise, surprise, sometimes... I am what I appear to be, very rarely. 
seriously, uh, do you see uh, this possibility that Greece gets out of uh, yeah, blah, 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 and Chinese enter, or not seriously? <laughs> no, no, I'm not a priori against the Chinese. What, was it you or some other Greek friends told me that, for example, the way China took over the Piraeus sport, well, was not exactly the model of social democracy pro-workers, no? no? That was a pretty brutal operation. Yeah. Do you see this is But this is, I mean, in a sense, something you've said repeatedly and we've discussed the future, uh, it seems to me, of Western democracies, that yeah, they're yeah. moving towards the Chinese model, which is, on the yeah. one hand, the most extreme type of liberal capitalism, neoliberal capitalism, mm. with restrictions and constraints and limitations upon democracy. So we are in a state of emergency, which is there in order to support the most liberal Uh, 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 capitalist system at the minute. Yeah, which again, I hope we both agree here, we see how we should redefine terms here. Like first, what I always repeat, neoliberalism is for me a myth. It was always de facto extremely regulated. I mean, who, who is neoliberal today? Are you seriously claiming that the United States are neoliberal? My God, let's be serious. No, actually, they're social democratic they're, today. They're moving the social Yeah, but even, even Bush was much more closer to some kind of corporate state intervention. It's incredible to what extent in the United States, as I told you, my old story, sorry if I repeat myself, uh, Some of the right-wingers that are in the United States refer to what we misperceive as the model of American wild capitalism, LA, Los Angeles area, as, as the Socialist Republic of Los Angeles. Because only, if you look closely at their industries, uh, defense, and so on, it's so, it's so connected to state intervention, state interests, and so on, and so on. And even in China, it's more complex. I read in an economic analysis that now the city which is most associated with wild capitalism in China, Shanghai. You know, they sacked there the party boss for, uh, for some high party maneuvers, but the official accusation was he went too far in capitalism, bourgeois, whatever. No? And then he defended himself in quite convincing terms. He said, wait a minute, the average of private versus state capital in China is 60% state, 40% private. He said in Shanghai, in the very years of the boom, it was 80 to 20. Shanghai, as the most dynamic capitalist part of China, had 80% state capital, 20% private. So, you know, it's not, I mean, Here I agree with you, something new, and we desperately need a theory of it, something new is emerging, which maybe in a Hegelian way overcomes this old dichotomy state regulated and liberal. Another thing, I'm sorry that I didn't have time to go into economic analysis more in detail, because, okay, I will give you just some clues. First, I agree with Fred Jensen, although he knows next to nothing about economy, but probably his sources were good, no? Where he claims that today one of the keys to understand the system is to uh, first to radically redefine unemployment. Unemployment is no longer just that classical Marxist uh, uh, reserve army, but it's getting much more radical. We have that his idea is that with the ongoing technological revolutions, The system is producing larger and larger strata of people which are 
how should I put it, structurally unemployable, like you were a textile worker for 30, 40 years, then all of a sudden it goes bankrupt, and then what can happen? Okay, people like uh, Anthony Giddens may come to you and tell you reinvent yourself, this postmodern bullshit, but the fact that you are out, it's even worse. As we know, this is why students protest. We get even a kind of a... a pre-unemployment, in the sense that you get oh, probably millions of students getting high education, being more and more aware that there is not even a chance for them to get the job. Then I think we should put into the same line the whole countries being excluded as this rogue state, whatever, this mixture of, I mean, those in power like, did you notice how being uh, the object of humanitarian help and being the object of war and terror, are basically like the Janus had two sides of the, of the same, uh, like this is what I like, one of the best caricatures from Afghanistan war, the first one when United States overthrew Taliban. You know, there was uh, already this term, axis of evil, no? And you have two Afghanistan farmers looking at some American planes and asking, what are these? Uh, are they bombers bombing the axis of evil or the good ones helping the victims? And like this moment of in, indecision. So, okay, uh, what Actually, I... Actually, this one, it was quite literal because hmm? immediately after the Americans entered Afghanistan, entered Kabul, they used planes to drop... Uh, food packages to yeah. various villages. No, no, it's so literal. Had, yeah, it's yeah. literal, it's physical, it happened physically. Mm -hmm. So you had the bombs first and then the food packages but I'm here with almost, corned beef. But know, I'm here almost States. practical. You know, I'm very practical here. That's why I like this Leninist approach. I would suggest Americans to simply adopt a certain code so that ordinary people know. Like If you have red color, it means bombs. Green <laughs> color, it means food. So that people know are this good, you know, it's the same as, you know, where I was really against, I want totally undecided, I think both sides are guilty in that Dominic Strauss-Kane case. But on one point, I was strictly for the girl. You remember when they claimed that she was lying in her application? But my God, everyone is lying. That's the only way to do it. I even read somewhere that there are already, that she simply used, there are four or five standard narratives that every practically refugee from Africa uses. One of them is that your village was occupied and some uh, gang of raped all of you, whatever, no? So my suggestion to the Americans would be that simply when they print the form, they simply say, you became a refugee because, and then printed the four standard version, <laughs> like A, my village was gang raped, B, C, D, and then E, any other exception, but if another version clarify it, like, because you're making it much more difficult for the bureaucrats, no, and so on. No, seriously, uh, just to go through this economy, first thing. The second thing, I think, I hope we also agree here, one of the lessons of what is going on now is also that maybe the time has come, I hope we agree, to stop with this... Uh, uh, how should I call it, Foucault, Agamben, focus on micropower domination, modes of domination, and to admit that exploitation has to join the camp. That this exclusive focus on forms of domination, 
without taking into account uh, uh, exploitation, mystifies the field. It's again the problem of domination, blah, 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 the proper, the proper economic dynamics is lost. Second thing, here I'm critical about Jameson, who, when he talks about rogue countries, just excludes them, like they are excluded. No, they are never simply excluded. Like I claim, if there is a country today which is fully included into the world market, it's Congo which is a rogue country. I mean, we know it's a basic source for certain marks. Or even take the case of Afghanistan. Taliban were a tragic interlude because, you know, whatever you say against them, the production of opium yeah, went down for 80%. And the main economic result of American intervention was that now they are back in game, they produce. So again, uh, this is for me, again, as I repeat, I know myself always, the point of the Hegelian notion of totality. How, uh, how, uh, how uh, uh, those who are out are also in, in, in the very mode of being excluded. This is the form of their integration. And now, if you just allow me, here maybe we agree. No, no, C contrary to this idea that we intellectuals or who or people should provide a detailed blueprint. I'm fully aware that neither the people know I'm totally opposed to this Maoist Heideggerian. You will immediately see why Heideggerian mystification of learn from the ordinary people. I think whenever a certain regime refers to the wisdom of ordinary people, it's usually the high bureaucracy justifying, legitimizing itself with that. I did already, no, I didn't read here that passage very short from Heidegger. You know, the most, this is for me Heidegger, I love Heidegger, great philosopher, but here at his lowest. You know that in 34, he was called to Berlin to retain a professorship there. And then he rejected, but he wrote a short text, Warum in the province bleiben? Uh, why do we stay in the provinces? And this is the disgusting mystification at its purest. I quote it. Recently, I got a second invitation to teach at the University of Berlin, Heidegger in 1934. On that occasion, I left Freiburg and withdrew to the cabin, this Todnauberg mountainhead. I listened to what the mountains and the forest and the farmlands were saying. And I went to see an old friend of mine, a 75-year-old farmer. He had read about the call to Berlin in the newspapers. What would he say? Slowly, he fixed the sure gaze of his clear eyes on mine, and keeping his mouth tightly shut, he thoughtfully put his faithful hand on my shoulder. Ever so slightly, he shook his head. That meant absolutely no. So the order... <laughs> now, my point is here, it's nice to imagine what the old farmer was really thinking. I think he was desperately trying to guess what city wisdom does Heidegger want from him and try to be polite, you know, and obviously he did hit, he did give the right answer. So again, we will not learn from protesters, if I may put it in German, warum bleiben wir in Wall Street or whatever. And I cannot add here another cynicism, but I don't mean it again. This is the reality of politics. I think that the recent occupation of 
Zoketti Square is the best thing that could have happened to protesters. Because my friends were telling me it was losing momentum and so on. And now at least they can claim, oh, we were brutally suppressed and so on. They are so stupid, Bloomberg and the, uh, the New York administration. My God, I would have left them there to slowly disintegrate, no? It's... Okay, whatever. What? You should give advice to Bloomberg and give more of I was, I appeared on Bloomberg TV with the Charlie Rose. Okay, let me go on. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, uh, on the other, so what I propose as a formula is what? Recently, I bought in New York a very good book, uh, um, um, uh, Andrei Platonov, The Soul, a collection of his stories which has a wonderful afterword by that progressive blah blah writer, John Berger. And uns although this was written three years ago, it's as if he is addressing today's protests when he writes, the multitudes, means the protesting people. I don't like this uh, negri hard term in the so definitive... You wrote, you wrote at the back of empire that this is the manifesto, Max Manifesto for the 21st century. Well, so, so how much, can you say now that you don't like hard and angry? Listen, you don't uh, take into account the inherent dialectics of history. You should read uh, Stalin's uh, on the historic Okay, no. <laughs> the multitude have answers to questions which have not yet been posed, and they have the capacity to outlive the walls, class distinction walls. The questions are not yet asked because to do so requires words and concepts which ring true, and those currently being used to name events, democracy, liberty, and so on, have been rendered meaningless. With new concepts, the questions will soon be posed, for history involved precisely such a process of questioning. So that's my very simple, purely rhetorical, but I think there is a moment of truth in it proposal. We shouldn't think about our role as intellectuals of, you know, Ordinary people want from us knowledge, we will provide the blueprint. No. I think that I much more like this approach, which reminds me of what Claude Lévi-Strauss wrote long ago about prohibition of incest. That this is not an enigma which requires an answer, but it's an answer we just don't know to which question it is an answer. So I think this is a much nicer description of what is going on now. The people with their protests are not asking questions. They are an answer, but an opaque answer. What we intellectuals can do with our knowledge is not to provide questions, but to start ask the right, sorry, to provide answers, but to start to raise the right questions. So that still the answer can only come from the people. But the answer will be recognized as the answer if we provide the frame for the question to which. This is a much more modest model where nonetheless we intellectuals are crucial. I don't buy that pseudo-populist bullshit, we are nothing, people know everything. But nonetheless, I think that if anything, with the 20th century fiascos, we intellectuals lost this arrogant right to say, we have the answers, we show you the way. Something like this would be maybe a good description of where we are today. And again, don't misunderstand me. Of even if I hate you Greeks, you ruined the European community with your laziness and so on. You are, you are the great ones, you know in what sense, that you are much further than others whose protest is way too moralistic. 
I sympathize with my friends in Spain. Again, as I already said, what I'm afraid of is only, you know, they even said we have a moral revolution. No, sorry, this is what Pope is saying. Pope, uh, a representative of Pope said recently, horrible thing, that the present crisis now is not a crisis of capitalism, but the crisis of morality. And Cameron says that here. Who? David Cameron. Yeah, but this is precisely, it's, it's again like, like coffee without cream. It's nice of them, they directly say what to negate, no? That they mention morality, not to question capitalism and so on and so on. So although there are bad guys who should be morally condemned, so that I don't care whatever you want, I don't have any problems with that penalty. But what I'm saying is that nonetheless, it's absolutely crucial not to moralize the crisis in this sense against greed or whatever yeah, yeah. and so on and so on. Now maybe it's time really we to conclude. We can have the smoke the peace pipe and so on. Uh, so let yeah, but I will open it. Show me your pipe so that put some poison into it. <laughs> <laughs> Let us open it to people. Uh, if you want to make any comments, any questions.